Thanks. Thanks. Uh, and, you know, uh, coming to a place that has, a, <coughs> has its own building, you know, it makes me sort of a little bit, not a little bit jealous, a lot jealous. And so I, I, I asked Jeff for the blueprint so I can take it back to my guys and say, you know, <laughs> this is the next step. Um, so this is the, 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 uh, the, the title that I, I don't know if I was given it or if I gave it to myself, but, but lessons learned. So um, it's a small group, and if I say something completely idiotic, just stop me. Um, oh, okay. Um, so this is the roadmap. Uh, uh, I'll talk about, this is BioView, and I'll talk about this project here, which is the implementation project that we've started about, uh, well, the project itself started in 2009. The, we started implementing in 2010. It takes a while between, the planning process takes a long time, as, as, you, as you know. So. Um, I like to start by showing this. So for those people, so this is one of the slides that doesn't translate well from, uh, from, uh, from the PC to the Mac. I'm, I'm, I was telling Jeff I'm, uh, I'm ambidextrous. I actually hate both platforms, <laughs> but um, I can live with either. So people who went to medical school or graduate school see things like this in physiology, and there's a pathway from phenylalanine down to this thing here. And, and at every point in the pathway, there's an enzymatic reaction, and at every point, it's possible to have defective enzyme function and therefore accumulation of upstream products and a disease. And the diseases are shown here, and in the PC version, this is actually in black as well. So, so um, the person who identified this particular paradigm is Garrod, uh, whose, whose book on the inborn areas of metabolism, that's a term he coined and, and is still widely used, uh, is on the web, so you can read it. And this is what he said in the introduction. The idiosyncrasies with regard to drugs presumably have a chemical basis. So his idea was that not only endogenous substrates, but exogenous substrates like food and drugs would be biotransformed in the body and that there would be some people in whom that biotransformation didn't happen normally. There would be accumulation of upstream products and some kind of unusual reaction. And so he's sort of credited with being, you know, one of the fathers of the idea of pharmacogenetics. Not that, um, not that he knew what a gene was, but there it is. So uh, I'm going I'm to really talk about pharmacogenetics. I'm, uh, I guess I should have made that clear because I think that's where the implementation starts. It's not where it ends. So pe when people talk about pharmacogenetics, they, they, the, the perception is always that you're, you're thinking about rare, spectacular adverse drug reactions. So this is a, a drug reaction, drug-induced arrhythmias. This is how I've spent the last 30 years of my career trying to sort this out, uh, and I'll eventually get there. Uh, and then these are others. I'm, I'm sometimes tempted, I don't know whether there are medical students in this audience, but I'm sometimes tempted to ask people what these are, but I won't. This is ACE inhibitor-induced angioedema, statin-induced myopathy, intracerebral bleeding from whatever anticoagulant you, what you want or don't want, a drug rash, which could be anything, and uh, hemolytic anemia, which is, uh, can have a genetic basis. It's an interesting story. But the real fact of the matter is that when you look at drug responses across a population, they always vary. So if you ask what is the response to LDL, what is the LDL lowering response to simvastatin, this is the kind of distribution you get. And so when, when a clinician takes care of a patient, they say, well, you know, simvastatin works very, very well to lower LDL cholesterol, and it does. I mean, 41% lowering is terrific, and the fact is that most people 
are in this range and so most people will have a you know a really really nice response occasionally there are people out here and occasionally there are people out here and it's the same for every single drug response you ever look at this response here is not a drug response this is just baseline ADP induced platelet aggregation so this is this is not a drug response this is physiologic variability in response to a challenge but when you give clopidogrel uh, and, and then take platelets from the patients, um, you see the same kind of variability. Everything's shifted, but again, there's some people who are over here and there's some people over here. And, and one of the things that I think we lose sight of in genetics is that most people are actually in the middle for most of those traits, but everybody is over here, over here for something. At least that's the way I think about it. So this is a, a uh, a reproduction of a reproduction of a reproduction of a picture that we published from the Pharmacogenetics Research Network oh, years ago now, uh, you know, showing the, the difference between this term pharmacogenetics and this term pharmacogenomics. This is the idea of single large of variance with single large effects, and this is the idea that you know, in an individual or across a population, many, many variants conspire to produce uh, the phenotypes that we see. The um, I'll just leave it at that. So my exposure, my history as a pharmacogeneticist goes back a long way, it turns out. Uh, the very first study that I did when I came to Vanderbilt as a fellow many, many, many years ago was a study with an antiarrhythmic drug called Enconide. And we were studying its effects in patients with certain kinds of arrhythmias. That's irrelevant to this discussion, but it could be if somebody wants to make a big deal out of it. And we studied... 11 patients, and we had 10 that, that had what we thought was a gratifying pharmacologic response and, a, and, a, and a one that had no pharmacologic response. And so the 10 who had the pharmacologic response are shown in, I should tell you what we did. We gave everybody 25 milligrams of enconide and then followed plasma concentrations for 24 hours. And then we, then we dosed them chronically and, and saw what their effect was. So, so what we have here is the, is the pharmacokinetics after a single dose of drug, the 25 milligrams right down there. And um, what you can see is the plasma concentrations vary strikingly from 1 to 100. That's a huge variation in plasma concentrations. The elimination half-life, which is the slope of this line on this log linear plot, is pretty fast. It's actually an average of two and a half hours or so. And, uh, and they all, like I said, they all had this pharmacologic response. Then we had this one non-responder who got to very, very high doses, and, and <coughs> nothing happened to her electrocardiogram, nothing happened to the other things we were following. And uh, to our surprise, she had the highest drug levels of all and the slowest drug elimination. And so we were sort of confused by that, because when we first saw this, we said, well, she's probably not absorbing the drug. That was our first sort of idea, and, and it turned out that was wrong. So um, it took the combined minds of the Division of Clinical Pharmacology at Vanderbilt months to sort out the fact that, that enconide is actually a prodrug, and it's bioactivated by an enzyme which we now call CYP2D6. We called it enconide O-demethylase uh, at the time. And, uh, and this person is a CYP2D6 poor metabolizer. So CYP2D6 is one of the grandfathers of uh, modern pharmacogenomics. It's uh, uh, responsible for the biotransformation of about 25% of drugs that are used clinically. And if you assay CYP2D6 activity, and that's possible to do, uh, you get a, dist a population distribution that looks like this. The, the, the x-axis is not, it's labeled here, lesser activity, greater activity, and that's all you need to know. Uh, but there's a group of people 
who have no enzymatic activity. And then there's a group of people who have enzymatic activity. So these are called poor metabolizers. These are called extensive metabolizers. We understand the genetic basis of that now. These people are either compound heterozygotes or homozygous for loss of function alleles in the gene. These people have uh, at least one functional copy and sometimes two functional copies. Uh, so 25% of this room is, is in this category, about 5 to 10% of the room is in this category, and the rest of you are in this category. Very rare individuals are out here, and they have actual gene, functional gene duplications. Um, so uh, that's CYP2D6, and um, there are many, many, many loss of functional alleles now described. There are common ones, and there are less common ones. Uh, they vary by ethnicity, and, and, if, uh, and if your lamp was better, <laughs> I, would, I could tell you that uh, the substrates are, are things that you know about, tamoxifen, codeine, uh, beta blockers, some antiarrhythmic drugs. I should list the antiarrhythmics first, right? Just, but but um, uh, so there, there, there are many substrates, some of which are clinically relevant. So I, I have a story, my Dave story. Um, so Dave Mrazek is, a, is a, a pharmacogeneticist, psychiatric pharmacogeneticist at, at Mayo, and he's a big believer in the idea of using pharmacogenetics to guide selection of antidepressant and antipsychotic drug therapy. He has a small study uh, looking at uh, venlafaxine, uh, which is a fexor. Some of you may know it as consumers of it. Uh, widely used antidepressant, 38, and it's a CYP2D6 substrate. Uh, so he had 38 subjects in this tiny little trial. Five of them were poor metabolizers, and none of them tolerated even low doses of the drug. They get headaches. And then a bunch of the others actually had therapeutic responses to ther what is thought to be therapeutic doses. So the question, so when you think about this data set for a second, um, and I think this is sort of like at the extreme of, of, uh, of, of this kind of thinking, one is, um, is, this, is this enough data for you to act on? It's a pretty small study, and headache is sort of a you know, hard-to-define kind of symptom. Uh, would you genotype people ahead of time if you were using Effexor? And so remember, the, the problem is um, you have to decide whether you believe the data, and, and the assay is going to be really pretty complicated because there are these hundreds of variant alleles that you have to think about uh, assaying. And then the other thing is, if, 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 if the electronic medical record uh, of the patients that you were taking care of had in red on the front, this person is a CYP2D6 poor metabolizer, would you use the data based on this? So those are the kinds of questions that we're asking ourselves now, and it's nice to be able to ask ourselves a question. So this is a slide that I, that I like. I've actually, for, for years, I didn't actually show this. I made it up about 10 years ago. It's a patient I took care of a long time ago, and it was around 2000. And my idea was, so this is what our electronic record looks like. So when you call up this particular patient, I've blanked out his name, uh, you see his diagnosis, his diagnoses, his procedures, and his medicines, and, uh, and his allergies. And, and I thought, well, what we should do is we should have a list of important genotypes. And this, so this is 10 years old. So some of these actually, uh, you know, are, are, are things that, I was in, interested in it at the time, but no longer so interested in it. But um, these are the kinds of genes, and they're all in blue because people could, in, in their free time in clinic, 
uh, click on them. And those of you who, who go and see patients in clinic know that you have no free time. So but it, you, could, you could click on each one of these. So I thought, well, maybe that's too much. So maybe what you could do is link the medicines to the genotypes. So this is Coumadin, and, and that's uh, well known to have uh, variants in CYP2C9 and BCOR-C1 that influence outcome. So, uh, so I thought maybe that's, that's the way the, the, the slide would work. And these would be red, so you could click on those at least. Um, so hold that thought. So I guess this slide must have been, now that I think about it, the last time I, the, when I made it up, must have been 2005, 2006, something like that, because, because no, because we, we didn't know about BCOR-C1 until, until then. So <clears throat> as you think about implementing pharmacogenetic information in healthcare, the, the questions I think that, that I think about, or I think and encourage people to think about is, is number one, is there variability in the phenotype, whatever it is. And the phenotypes are, you know, the, that I'm obsessed by are drug responses, but there are other kinds of phenotypes that you might ask yourself. Um, and is the variability clinically important? Is the variability genetic? I, I, you know, I, I know that it's probably heresy to say that in this room, but there are some sources of clinical variability that are, that are not necessarily genetic. Um, and is, is it going to be easy to figure that out? So are there a small number of variants that produce big effects, a lot of variants, that each of which produce a little effect? Uh, the assays, uh, these are the questions that we're now thinking about. Uh, do you know what to do with patients if you find a variant genotype? Is there any kind of evidence at all? And the evidence might be a randomized clinical trial, but more often it's going to be sort of a gestalt of putting together a whole bunch of data. From, uh, from various sources. And then down here, uh, underneath this, uh, this is good, uh, the, the really key question, uh, what it says is, uh, do you use a landline or an iPhone? Uh, and what I mean by that is, do, are you, do you live in an electronic environment or not? So if you live in an environment where the medical records are delivered to you in manila folders that are, make a stack like this big, it's really hard to think about how this could get implemented. Um, so let me talk about clopidogrel, the poster child for uh, pharmacogenetics. Um, and everybody who gets a stent put in their coronary artery um, since the middle of the 2000s gets put on 75 milligrams of clopidogrel a day. And the reason they get put on that uh, dose is trials like this. This is actually one of the big trials that uh, showed that if you put pe randomized people to clopidogrel, there are fewer cardiovascular events than if you randomize them to placebo. So this is the difference, and this is what you're trying to prevent with uh, 75 milligrams of, of clopidogrel. Um, notice that the event rates on placebo are not 100%. The event rates on drug are not 0%. And if you know nothing else about your patient, you probably prescribe clopidogrel. One of the really interesting things is this, is this date here. So clopidogrel marketed in 1997, a multi-billion dollar a year drug, and it was only in 2006 that the first piece of data started to emerge that this drug, in fact, is a prodrug and requires bioactivation to achieve its pharmacologic effects, and that bioactivation has a big genetic component to it. So clopidogrel requires bioactivation to this stuff to achieve its antiplatelet effects, so a, a, a digression this man was one of my mentors at Vanderbilt, uh, Grant Wilkinson, up here. And in the mid-1980s, Grant was studying um, 
this drug, and none of you have ever heard of this drug, and uh, none of you have ever prescribed this drug. So it's a drug. It was a. It was an anti-seizure drug that was, that was popular for a little while in Europe. I, I'm told. But what he had discovered was that everybody gets plasma concentrations, but some people don't make metabolite in their urine, some people do. And so he had defined a, uh, what he thought at the time was a genetic uh, variability in mephenitoin metabolism. We were very interested in CYP2D6, and it was clear that this was not CYP2D6, it was something else. So he had defined a new, uh, a new genetic story. I, I gave him a hard time because I said, you know, who cares? Because mephenitoin is like... A, you know, a drug that nobody cares about, nobody uses. So um, it turns out that he was right and I was wrong because S-mephenitoin hydroxylase is what we now call CYP2C19, which is the poster child for clopidogrel because this is, this is the enzyme that plays a major role in this biotransformation. So there are many, many pieces of data. It's a controversial area. I'm perfectly happy to talk about uh, uh, the levels of evidence for clopidogrel forever and ever and ever. But um, here is a meta-analysis of patients who have undergone coronary stenting and looking at coronary events afterwards. And if you have a reduced function allele in CYP2C19, your odds ratio of having an event is 1.57. And if you have, and your odds ratio of having the most feared event, which is a clot developing inside the stent, that's why you give clopidogrel, it's, it's, it's actually almost three, and if you actually have, if you're actually a homozygote for the loss of functional alleles, then you, it's almost four, in fact. Uh, and the name of the, there's a single common loss of functional allele, I'll show you the data on population distributions in a little while, but it's uh, called CYP2C19 star two, and 18.6% uh, of this room is heterozygous, and about 2.7% of this room is homozygous for that variant. So it's a pretty common variant. Um, now, uh, the effect of clopidogrel to inhibit ADP-induced platelet aggregation has been studied by genome-wide association. This is a study that Alan Schuldinger, who's part of the Pharmacogenetics Research Network, uh, did in the Amish uh, and published in JAMA in 2009. And uh, I, I like to show this for many, many reasons. One, of, I don't need to explain it to this audience, but. You know, you don't have to be a statistical geneticist to see that there's something going on here. So that, that, that peak is uh, at the CYP2C19 gene cluster. There's a whole bunch of CYPs uh, that cluster together. And it turns out that if you condition the analysis on CYP2C19 star 2, the common variant, this peak goes away. So this is probably CYP2C19 star 2. What's interesting is that you can estimate heritability, and the, this is a, this particular trait, which is an endophenotype. It's not, it's not, you know, a, a heart attack. It's clopidogrel-induced inhibition of ADP-stimulated platelet aggregation. Clopidogrel is an, is a, it's clopidogrel metabolites are uh, their mode of action is to bind to the ADP receptor on platelets. So this is a direct measure of clopidogrel action. So the overall heritability is high. The heritability attributable to this particular variant is modest. So what I like to say when I show this is if you're a cardiologist, you say, well, you know, how does that help me? Uh, because it's not, it doesn't, it's not 50 or 75 percent. But if you're a geneticist, of course, you know, you, you now have a single SNP that explains 12 percent of variability in a, in a clinically important trait. So that's pretty exciting. Um, uh, so that's where we are. So where is the missing heritability? And, and this is a cool little story. This is these are data that I stole from Debbie Nickerson, uh, 
who's also in the PGRN and has been an advisor and friend. So she's you know, looked at the, these are, these are data you can get out of 1,000 genomes, these are data you can get out of anywhere, and I'm, I'm sure it's familiar to all of everybody in this room that, that most variation in the human genome is not uh, you know, assayed by GWAS platforms. This is, these are the variants that are on GWAS platforms, greater than you know, 1% or 5% or something like that. But most variants, uh, when you look at exomes at least, are down here. Um, and she uh, and a graduate student whose name I can't remember, and I'm, that, that's a bad thing, because the graduate student obviously is the one who did all the work, um, looked at CYP2C19. They've looked at a bunch of these SIPs in, in several thousand exomes as part of the exome sequencing project that was part of their GO effort uh, in 2009. These, this is what DB SNP says about CYP2C19. Uh, before this project starts. So there's about 10 or 12 variants, some of which have been associated with function. I can't remember which one is CYP2C19 star 2, but that's where they are. And this is what happens when you do the exome sequencing. So there's a lot of variants. There's at least one that disrupts the start site, so presumably that's a loss of function. The, the rest of them, you know, you don't know if they're, if they're if they exert variant function or not. And that's going to be obviously one of the major challenges to everybody in this room to figure out, you know, which of these, how do you, how do you decide which of these are functional or not. So I, I call this talk lessons. So lessons number one is uh, I think um, there's a key role for discovery in all this. And that's why I tell you the Grant Wilkinson story. So you have to have scientists who are who are pursuing, you know, very, very fundamental questions because that's going to be part of what we uh, will we'll need. So the low-hanging fruit, and clopidogrel is the low-hanging fruit, is um, pretty complicated. Uh, sometimes you have the problem of many alleles. Uh, sometimes the genotyping assays don't work. In a project that I'll tell you about in a little while, we've been using the Illumina ADME panel, which is 184 SNPs and 32 genes or 34 genes in a CLIA environment. So in a CLIA environment, the, the pathologists get very, very uh, obsessive about, you know, how well the assays work. And, and even for this panel, which is, you know, deployed in this environment, there's a bunch of variants on that panel that just don't work very well, to the point where we don't even bother to call them anymore. Um, and then there's this whole problem of ancestry. Everything we know about uh, this field, or most of what we know about this field, is, is in Caucasians. Uh, there's a problem of evolving levels of evidence. So what I mean by that is that uh, I showed you clip, some clopidogrel data, but there are other clopidogrel data that say, for example, if you're using the drug in uh, patients with atrial fibrillation, if you're using the drug in patients with neurovascular disease, there's less evidence that the variants make a difference. I think that's probably a question of power and study design, but the fact is that we, you know, if you're going to look at evidence, uh, it changes all the time. Uh, when we started our project, we, um, which, uh, we, we only focused on patients with CYP2C19 star 2 homozygosity. So we only co concentrated on that 3% of the population that has, uh, uh, that are homozygous for the loss of function variant. And then as evidence was accumulated that the heterozygotes also have reduced response to the drug, then you have to change what you do in a, in a clinical implementation program. And then this variable clinical context, that's what, what I mean by that is this atrial fibrillation business that I just mentioned. So uh, if you're going to use variant information in healthcare, there are two ways to do it. One way is to say, I'm prescribing clopidogrel, I'm going to get a CYP2C19 
uh, genotyping test, and people are very, very interested in getting that, those data delivered very quickly. So, <clears throat> so you get that, those data um, at the point of care. Uh, people are <coughs> developing assays that will deliver the information in you know, three quarters of an hour, an hour and a half, or whatever. And uh, uh, the other way is to do it this way, which is this cartoon. I, I love this cartoon. It came out in The New Yorker in 2000 when victory over the human genome was declared. You know, sort of, so, so that was the end of the, th that was when we had the first draft sequence of the human genome. So the idea was that this lady takes her uh, sequence, notice it's not to a physician, it's to a pharmacist, and, uh, and says, you know, here, you figure it out, right drug, <coughs> right dose, first time. And I'm fond of showing this, I say, you know, this is reactive and this is preemptive. We obviously think preemptive is the way to go. And, and, I, and I like to point out that, you know, this is green and this is red, and there are some people in this room who can't tell the difference, and that's, <laughs> and that's genetic, too. Um, Francis Collins agrees with us that, uh, so he was interviewed in the New England Journal of Medicine when he became NIH director, and he was asked about pharmaco, he was asked about a lot of things. Pharmacogenomics is like, it's almost like, oh, that's just almost too easy. Uh, you know, everybody's DNA sequences in their medical record, you simply click a mouse to find out all the information. It's going to be a much lower barrier to incorporate that into drug prescribing, and it should improve outcomes and reduce adverse events. And, and, and we agree, except for, for that, that, that word there, and it's, it's really uh, not very simple. And I'll, I'll try to give you a sense of how unsimple it is. So step one for us. So I told you I would talk about the DNA bank, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about that. And then I'm going to tell you a little bit about our implementation project, which, is, which flows from this and from, from the other kinds of thoughts that I've given you over the last 20-minute uh, introduction. So the DNA bank links DNA samples to de-identified electronic medical records. I can tell you, for, I can talk for an hour about how that works, but here's the, the punchline. The punchline is that as of yesterday, there are 138, 139,000 samples in the bank. Uh, almost 15,000 ch children, and the GWAS number is a variable number. Uh, I actually got data last week that they're now about 14 and a half thousand. Um, you can have, you know, you can have this seat if you want. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to use it. That's for sure. <laughs> so, um, and that becomes important because, as I'll show you in a little while, uh, those are reusable data. Uh, so. <coughs> The first thing we did with, the, with BioView was what we called a demonstration project. We, we started to accumulate samples, so we started to plan in 2004, we started to accumulate samples in 2007, and after we'd accumulated some samples, we sort of sat around one day and said, well, if you were an investigator and somebody said, you should study that in BioView, how would you know it works? So our first idea, my first idea, was to say, well, let's, you know, just genotype a bunch of people with type 2 diabetes and a bunch of people who don't have type 2 diabetes and genotype them at uh, this TCF7L2 variant that everybody knows predicts the development of type 2 diabetes and show that it works. And, and then the, the, the conversation went sort of like this. It sort of said, well, what happens if that assay doesn't work or what happens if that experiment fails because there's something funny about our type 2 diabetes population but the whole, the whole resource works. So what we did was we basically developed some sequinome pools and assayed about 100 or 150 SNPs of people's choice that also predicted many of these diseases. The analysis I'm going to show you focused on five of them, these five, 
Um, and then the idea was to develop ways in which to extract cases and controls for these diseases out of the electronic medical record. I thought this was the hard part, and this was the hard part, and this was the easy part. And it turns out that this is the hard part, and these two are pretty straightforward. Um, so rheumatoid arthritis was the very first uh, diagnosis we tried to get our hands around. And uh, to this day remains the, the champion in terms of <clears throat> how long it took to develop the algorithm. So what we do when we develop an algorithm is we uh, use, our informatics guys develop an algorithm, deploy it in our electronic record until they get 200 cases. And then some fellow sits down and, and hand curates them and says, what, is this a real case, yes or no? And if not, why did the algorithm find it? So you refine the algorithm until you get a positive predictive value of 95%. Then we say, wait, we, we finished. We have an algorithm that defines rheumatoid arthritis. Move on. And we had to go through four iterations. I'm not going to walk you through what all this is, but four iterations to get to a rheumatoid arthritis case definition. That's still the record. And if we actually had it to do it today, we would, we would be better at it because we we've learned some tricks along the way in terms of how to extract this data uh, and, you know, one of the tricks, without, <coughs> without going into the details, is <coughs> talk to the rheumatologists. You have to talk to the content experts because they can tell you how these things are coded in the record. You know, who puts in a code for rheumatoid arthritis? When do they do that? Stuff like that. There are all kinds of nuances to this. So we ended up with an algorithm. Out of the first 10,000 patients, there were 255 with clear rheumatoid arthritis, another 500 who might have rheumatoid arthritis, another 1,100 who clearly didn't. That's a separate algorithm. You know, you have to have a... Uh, an algorithm to find the controls as well. And uh, so what we did was we looked at these 21 SNPs across these five diseases, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, Crohn's, type 2 diabetes, and where is the atrial fibrillation. Um, and these are the odds ratios in the literature. Uh, and th these are the power calculations that we went through to figure out how many people we would need to find to reproduce this in BioView. Uh, and this is what we found. So when we're powered, we find stuff. Even when we're not powered, all of our estimates, all of our point estimates are in the right direction, which is pretty gratifying. Uh, sometimes they're really just a little bit in the right direction, but they're in the right direction. This is, you know, dramatically underpowered. And so if you have an odds ratio of 1.4 higher, we generally reproduce that with statistical significance. Otherwise, it's the, the trend is in the right direction. So. Uh, that's with 10,000 people. We now have 138,000 people. We haven't done the experiment again, but we're pretty confident that we can reproduce what people want to see if it's there. So um, most of, a lot of what we've done in, uh, in BioView has related to our participation in, in eMERGE, the Electronic Medical Records and Genomics Network. So eMERGE 1, uh, we're now in eMERGE 2. So eMERGE 1, the goal was to figure out whether DNA collections coupled to electronic medical records could be used for genome science. So there are five sites. Each site got to designate a phenotype of their choice and, uh, and then do a genome-wide association study to look at genetic determinants of that particular phenotype. And then the idea was we were going to put all that together and figure out how to do something across the network. And I'll talk a little bit about that. So the idea was at the end of the day you'd have a a collection of GWAS data in something like 15 to 18,000 people, I think 17 and a half thousand at the end of the day, um, with electronic medical records. And that's turned out to be an interesting resource and is now getting expanded in eMERGE 2. And it, it should be an interesting resource for lots and lots of science. So the five sites, uh, I, I, you know, I can't resist showing <laughs> this. <laughs> so just to sort of give you, so this is, our model is, a, is an opt-out 
model based on a de-identification algorithm. And, and the, the main reason that that is attractive to us is because you can get very, very large numbers of patients. These are opt-in models, and they are much, much smaller. And, and it turns out that to do the kind, this kind of work, you really need these numbers. This is going to be hard to get something out of. So our phenotype was normal variability in the QRS durations. Remember, I'm an electrophysiologist, so this is sort of my, my impact on this. So for those of you who don't remember, this is a cardiogram, and this is the QRS duration, that, that time there. There's a, it's an index of conduction in the heart. There's a sort of a, a, a line of reasoning that says, well, the, the longer this is, the slower conduction is in the heart. The slower conduction is, the more likely it is you're going to have an arrhythmia. So, but that's sort of complicated. But, but we were interested just in this physiology to start with. So we developed an algorithm to, uh, to ask whether we could find patients in whom the first electrocardiogram in the record was normal. There's no evidence of heart disease, no mention of heart disease in the, in the records that come with the patient, normal electrolytes, no confounding drugs. And we deploy that across the entire electronic medical record. So the entire electronic medical record is around 2 million records. And the, the BioView, the DNA collection, is a subset of that. And we found 30,000 people, 30,000 individual records that, who, with ECGs that met this. And this is what the QRS durations look like. So it's a, it's a distribution histogram. I'm sorry you can't see the numbers here, but this is, well, you can see this down here. <coughs> if you'll read in a textbook, the upper limit of normal is 120, but it turns out not very many people live in the 110 to 120 millisecond range. This is about 60 milliseconds. So our question was, you know, what is it that makes somebody live in this part rather than this part? You know, across a normal, a set of completely normal ECGs. So this is what the, the Manhattan plot looks like when we merge the data set from Vanderbilt with other sets from across the network. There, is, uh, there are hits at genome-wide significance with a data set of about 5,200. Uh, the top SNP was in a gene called SCN5A, which is the cardiac sodium channel gene that controls conduction in the heart, so it sort of makes sense. There have been other, there have been other larger GWASs uh, that have been published that also sort of land on this locus and a couple of other places that uh, I can talk about but are not relevant to this talk. So what we did at that point was something that I think is enabled by the electronic medical record and is a sort of new way of thinking about this. So this is a phenotype and you ask the question whether the phenotype associates with any genetic variant across the genome. What we did was we turned the experiment on its head. We said, here, let's ask among people who have this particular genetic variant, wild type or variant, with what diagnosis does that particular genetic variant associate? And we can do that in the electronic record because there are lots and lots and lots of diagnoses, and they accumulate, you know, they don't accumulate because they're part of a study, they accumulate because these are people who are getting health care. So these are what we call ICD-9 codes. They're not a uh, terribly uh, sophisticated way of, of parsing out uh, phenotype, but that's what we have right now. Uh, this is an analysis done across eMERGE in 13,000 Caucasian subjects. So this is, you know, the data are displayed in a way that's familiar to everybody in this audience. There are these two high-value SNPs, and those are arrhythmia SNPs, or arrhythmia SNPs, arrhythmia diagnoses, right? So one way of thinking about this is that, that, that this guy's an arrhythmia guy, and of course he's going to show you an arrhythmia diagnosis, big deal. But remember, all of the, this, this, this SNP was identified by analyzing normal ECGs and people who do not have heart disease at the time that ECG is recorded. So what this suggests is that this 
SNP, in addition to predicting whether your QRS is long or short, will predict whether you get an arrhythmia or not. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, an advantage of the electronic record is that you have this longitudinal outcome data. So a big slide between those two, I mean, that's a, that's a leap in logic, but we think that that's where it's going. One of the other things that Emerge has taught us is that genomic data are reusable. We, we debated about a network-wide phenotype and said, well, let's, um, uh, let's do hypothyroidism. Don't ask how we got to hypothyroidism, but we got, let's do hypothyroidism. And um, so we said, well, let's, let's develop the algorithm. And we developed the algorithm. And, um, and it turned out there were 1,300 cases already done across Emerge, gen you know, genotyped for something else, and 5,000 controls genotyped for something else. And so we did the, the analysis without doing any more genotyping. And get this hit that's replicated. And the closest gene is FOXY1. FOXY1 is a transcription factor that's important in thyroid development and in thyroid cancer. So we think it's real. And uh, then we did the FIWAS at the FOXY1 locus, and we get hypothyroidism back with a p-value of 10 to the minus 13th, which is pretty good because we're not doing 500,000 tests. We're doing only about 1,000 tests of association here. And we also get a bunch of other diagnoses, thyroiditis and chronic lymphocytic thyroiditis and atrial flutter and abnormal thyroid function. So it's a pretty cool way of validating. It's a validation of the GWAS result. And, and you find you know, associated things. Now, the other thing that's interesting is you find this association with pernicious anemia. And there's a clinical association as well. What that means, I'll leave it to some endocrinologist to figure out. Um, but we've also started to look across the GWAS catalog. Just, you know, and, and this is an experiment that you can do when you have this data set. So this is uh, a SNP that's associated with skin color. And when we do the FIWAS on that particular SNP, what we come up with is a lot of skin cancer and other kinds of skin lesions. You know, a whole bunch of other things that we're not sure what they mean. But this is sort of pretty interesting because it suggests that, that you can use this tool to actually identify pleiotropic gene effects. So the lessons from this part are that electronic records probably have some utility as, uh, as tools for genome science. Um, the really big uh, questions are, you know, how good are the phenotypes and, and how do you extract you know, detailed phenotypes out of the record? And the detailed phenotypes, these are the ones that we really want to get at. Um, not whether somebody has type 2 diabetes, but once they get type 2 diabetes, what is it that makes their leg fall off or what is it that makes them go blind? Those are the kinds of things that might actually be clinically useful as well. So back to Grant for a second. I gave a seminar in, at Vanderbilt sometime, a long time ago, and Grant came up to me afterwards and said, uh, yeah, that, was, that was fun, but you know, how are you going to start to get this information into the record? So. Um, that's, the, that's the, what I want to talk about now. So I've shown you this Francis Kahn slide. So if you want to do this uh, and you want to take the first step, um, and the, the name of the project that we've adopted is PREDICT, um, I always thought it should be PREDICTIVE. It should be whatever, blah, 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 in the Vanderbilt environment. <laughs> so, so. But I'm, I'm, I never win the... the the discussions over what the projects should be named. So that's, I'll just leave it at that. So th what you would do is you'd select a group of people who are about to get drug 
a drug or drugs that have some pharmacogenetic story around them. So that's the first thing you would do, because you don't want to do this in everybody to start with. You want to do it in the high-risk people. You genotype them, and you wouldn't genotype them for the drug that you think they're going to get. You genotype them for that drug and a whole bunch of other drugs that you think they might get. So many drugs preemptively. And then you do what I call the easy stuff, and that's facetious, of course. You'd store the genotypes. You'd figure out how to advise doctors and other healthcare professionals about you know, what those genotypes mean. Uh, you'd figure out what you did to outcomes. Uh, so th that's, the, that's the idea around PREDICT. This is uh, the flowchart. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to walk you through this. Just I show this just to show how complicated project planning can be. And uh, people like me, and um, maybe Jeff can do this. I can't. Uh, you have to have sort of professional project managers whose job in life is to take care of big, big projects like this. But you have to engage many, many, many communities to do this, and they're all listed here, and you can read them. Uh, we were told by our <coughs> uh, medical center leadership, by our Victor Zhao, that we had one year to plan the project. So we planned it from fall of 2009 to fall of 2010, and, and then we rolled it out. So the first thing we thought about, well, who are those patients? So one, way to th one, way, one group of people might be people who get care at Vanderbilt. Facetiously, and, and this is actually probably a pretty good marker, maybe everybody should get genotyped for all those drug responses once they turn 50 or 55 or some number like that. <laughs> um, and so we actually asked the question, what would happen? Uh, can we identify cohorts of people within our medical record who get all their care at Vanderbilt. Obviously, two million people in our electronic medical record, they don't all get followed at Vanderbilt. But there's, we found a cohort of about 50,000 people who make their medical home at Vanderbilt and asked, over the course of five years, how many of them were exposed to a drug that has, uh, in its FDA label, <coughs> a mention of pharmacogenetics that, that might be used to mitigate uh, failure of response or mitigate adverse reactions. And the, the answer was a bit of a surprise. The answer was that 65% of people get at least one drug over the course of five years, and 15% um, and get it four or more drugs. So that's, um, that was interesting. So one way to implement PREDICT might be to start with this group of people. It's still five years is a long time horizon, so what, we've, what, we, what we did while we were planning this, the FDA did us a favor. And uh, I'll skip that. The FDA did us a favor and uh, relabeled clopidogrel. And this is still very, very controversial. And people yell at the FDA, and the FDA yells back. Um, but the last bullet says, you know, consider alternative treatment or treatment strategies in patients identified as CYP2C19 poor metabolizers. So, you know, the FDA will say they don't dictate the practice of medicine. Uh, but, <coughs> you know. If I'm on the front lines, this is pretty much dictating the practice of medicine. So um, we decided to start with patients who are going to the cath lab. In our place, just like at your place, I'm sure, something like 40% of people who go into the cath lab come out the other end on clopidogrel. The number is actually about 35% when we actually do the study. And so that means we genotype every single person for clopidogrel response understanding that some of them actually don't end up on clopidogrel. The alternative is to wait until the drug is prescribed, and we want the data in the chart when the drug is prescribed or as soon afterwards as we can. So one of the things that in that complicated flow chart was um, 
does the clopidogrel story hold up at the, in the Vanderbilt environment? And so we actually did a study uh, looking at people who had gotten a stent and then um, were followed for 30 days. And we had 205 cases of complications, vascular events uh, defined. Uh, we have a definition for that. And then uh, controls, about two to one controls. This is when the data set was about 80,000, so we could increase this. But it gives you a sense of, of why you need 135,000 people, because this is not a very large set. It's big enough to make us comfortable that we can find a CYP2C19 star 2 signal with an odds ratio that's decent. And actually, we find a signal for another genetic variant, which I'm not going to talk about. We've done the same thing with warfarin, just, just parenthetically. Um, this is 815 Caucasians. We've actually, the, the paper that reported this actually included another 150 uh, African Americans who are completely different for warfarin responses. So the, the genetic variants that make a difference uh, for Caucasians overlap, but not completely with the, those in the African American population. And we have, I like to show this because the p values are so low, but there's a reason. If when you look at dose, it's easy to get p values. When you look at outcomes, it's harder to get p values. So this is what the CYP2C19 data set looks like as of yesterday, 59, almost 6,000 patients genotyped, and most of those are uh, uh, wild type. But there's 2.6%, so I said 2.7%, it bounces around, that are star 2, star 2. So we focused our initial attention on this group, but then we expanded it to include the star 1, star 2. It's something over 1,100, and it's 18.8%. And so there are 1,200, almost 1,300 people out of the 5,000, 6,000 people who get exposed to clopidogrel who have variant, uh, who are predicted to have variant drug responses. I, I, I like to show this slide. So this is the very first patient who was identified as being a star two, star two. This is her cardiologist who's a champion for the whole program. And you have to have champions, local champions. So it was sort of ironic and nice that the first patient uh, who came out the other end was one of his patients. So what I'm fond of saying is that you know personalized medicine is not about delivering a genome. It's about one doctor taking care of one patient, and they're using the you know everything they know about this patient. So she turns out to be elderly, and that makes a difference in terms of what you prescribe. She turns out to have a stent, that makes a difference. It turns out to have other diseases that make a difference, and she turns out to be a star two, star two. So that all that helps him personalize her care. So um, I told you before that this was the algorithm. So we genotype people on this Illumina ADME platform that I mentioned earlier. Uh, um, one of the other variants that's on that platform is SLCO1B1, which is the variant that is a variant that's in implicated in variable statin responses. So <coughs> from the very beginning of the program, we've been accumulating genetic information on that particular variant. We don't roll that out to physicians until we go through an evaluation process that says this is a useful SNP when patients are prescribed this particular drug. So we don't, we don't put all 184 variants in the electronic record. We only put the ones in the electronic record which have gone through this, this sort of evaluation process. So the first was CYP2C19 star 2, star 2, and then star 2, star 1, star 2, and the next was this one. So here are the SLCO1B1 data. Uh, and the number is exactly the same. There's actually two patients who, who, who have one but not the other. And the, it's the same kind of story. There's 1.8% of the population that's at risk. This, is, this presented us an interesting problem when we, first, when we decided to roll this out into the electronic record environment. What do you do with patients who have this 
risk predictor who are on chronic statin therapy? Do, do, do you tell their doctors? Do you not tell their doctors? The doctors say, well, you know, I wish you hadn't told me that. I, you know, their patient's doing fine. And, and so, so we went through a whole exercise of trying to figure that out. And, and, and I tell those stories because it turns out that, we're, you know, if we're going to implement, these are the kinds of issues that you're going to have to face over and over and over again. Um, so, so this is what the record looks like right now. This is not fake. This is not my idea of the, what the record looks like. This is a real, live, honest-to-God record. Again, one of my patients. But, um, uh, and so stuck in between adverse drug reactions and medications is this section. And it just lists what they are. If a patient is prescribed clopidogrel the and the system will look in uh, their genetic data set, if they have genetic testing that has been performed and they have a variant genotype, this complicated set of point-of-care decision support comes up and we basically tell them that the suggested uh, approach is to prescribe Prasagrel, a different uh, inhibitor of the same uh, receptor. Um, but there are other options and, and we'd like to know why they chose other options. And, and so we're, these are the kinds of things. We're tracking how often this fires. We're tracking how often people change their minds about what drug to prescribe. Those, those are the kinds of outcomes we're looking at. So <clears throat> a series of lessons, then I'm going to stop. So clopidogrel. Um, uh, starting with clopidogrel was a good idea because it's a very widely used drug. There, it's a single genetic variant. It turns out it's not. Of course, there are many other variants that are also resulting in loss of function. They were rarer. And the assay was pretty reliable for the CYP2C19 star 2. That's the... That, those are the big advantages. The disadvantages, uh, and, and I don't ordinarily talk a lot about these because uh, you know, I don't want people to know the warts of the program, but for this audience, I think it's important to know. So uh, the rapid turnaround issue is an issue. Uh, we can turn it around in about two or three days. Cardiologists, if they're going to get the data, they want it yesterday. Um, there's some controversy about uh, uh, what do you do with the data? There's some controversy about how, to, how best to manage these patients. Uh, what we know is that they're predicted to have a decreased response to clopidogrel. We don't know whether increasing the dose, for example, makes a big difference or not. Not sure what to do about it in patients who don't have coronary stents. Not sure what to do in patients who are not European-Americans. And then there's this business of sort of, it's all a moving target. You know, you don't just stick it in the record and the, that's the end of the story. You, you, we're, we're learning about this, this part. We're learning about interactions with proton pump inhibitors. That's a very unsettled story. We're uh, learning what other antiplatelet therapies can do. So we may change that advice that we give people. Uh, this is one of the other drugs that's just out now. And, and, and those are the kinds of things that we're that we're you know, going to have to worry about uh, on an ongoing basis. So this is team science. It's a team sport. It's not something that you sort of decide to do in your own lab, but you have to engage not just, uh, not just a bunch of labs, but sort of real, really the leadership. I'm not sure what it says underneath here. Actually, I can look what it says underneath here. It says outcomes and economics. And I'm sure there's, a, there's, I'm sure there's some scientific constituency that I've forgotten in here. But uh, I try not to. I mean, I think that, what? Legal. Legal. Uh, well, yeah, that's sort of, for us, that's, yeah, but you're right, that legal is part of it. <laughs> no, so our lead ethicist is a lawyer. Okay. So I, I, does, does that, I, mean, that, I mean, that doesn't make it right. <laughs> Just saying, okay? So uh, budgets, people ask me about this. So predict. 
The PREDICT program itself is a commitment by the, by the medical center leadership to about $5 million over, over two years. And that, that's sort of, none of this includes the cost of you know, generating and maintaining the electronic medical record. BioView itself started with about a million dollars a year, and it's, that's, that's about where it is now. It's somewhere between one and two million dollars a year. Um, one of the other lessons is that every time you want to sort of, if you want to engage, if you want to do SLC01B1, you have to engage the cardiologist and the pharmacogeneticist. If you want to do thiopurine methyltransferase, uh, which is important for azathioprine and 6-mercaptopurine. You have to engage doctors who use those drugs and who understand the genetics of those drugs and how they fit into their practice. So oncologists and rheumatologists and nephrologists and gastroenterologists and dermatologists. So, that's, so you have to engage the domain experts. You have to engage the patients. You have to understand the levels of evidence. And, and the other thing that I think is really important in this is that you have to have extremely high quality genotyping data. So the story that I'm fond of saying is I walk onto the wards and some house officer says to me, Mrs. Smith is in renal failure, her creatinine is eight. And I look at Mrs. Smith and her creatinine was two the day before uh, and she feels fine and she's not throwing up or any of the other things that you'd expect in somebody with acute renal failure. And you sort of look at her and you say, well, that's probably a lab error, do it again. But in the genetics space, you just don't have any context. If the, if the lab says they're a poor metabolizer, they're a poor metabolizer. End of discussion. There's no opportunity to go back. So the assays better be very, very high quality, and you better not mix up the samples. Um, so in the last set of lessons are that uh, if you want to personalize medicine, you want to take care of one patient at a time, you have to have these very large data sets to develop the evidence that that's the right, the right thing to do. I, I, I say here absolute requirement for electronic medical records, and I think I still cling to that. Um, I noticed yesterday or the day before NHGRI issued an RFA and part of the RFA is to how to do this implementation exercise in environments that don't have electronic medical records. Uh, you know, I personally think that's sort of a waste of time, but that's... Um, and so, the, and the electronic record, you know, offers you the advantage of taking care of a single patient, aggregating data across patients providing the decision support and, and driving discovery. I hope I've convinced you that you can do that. And the only way that happens is, is if you know, the, the leaders of the institution sort of say, this is an institutional priority for us. The pathologists have to do it, and the clinicians have to do it, and, and everybody has to be on board in an enthusiastic kind of way. Uh, these are people in my own lab who work on these kinds of problems. Some of them work on electrophysiology problems. Many of the people in this picture actually work on BioView and uh, BioView-related projects. We're part of eMERGE and part of the Pharmacogenomics Research Network. And these are some of the important people who have played a role in the uh, uh, BioView and the PREDICT projects. The informatics team, the genetics team, the project management team, the ethicist team, the translational scientists, and these are the last three uh, vice chancellors for health affairs that we've had at Vanderbilt. He created the electronic medical record. He said we should have BioView, and he said we had to have PREDICT. And, and actually, he, does anybody in this room know who this is? This guy is a guy named Ike Robinson. And before he came to Vanderbilt, he was uh, director of this hospital. So he's a dookie, but we won't hold that against him. OK, so that's all I have to, what? Uh, Bill Stead, so Bill Stead, yeah, Bill Stead ought to be on this picture, you're right. So Bill trained with this guy, and 
Dan Masis was the chairman of biomedical informatics who Bilstead hired to do the works. Instead is like the He's like the Cardinal Richelieu of the whole thing. He's like the Eminence <laughs> Grise behind. You're right, I should have a picture of him up here as well. Uh, so that's all I have to say. And uh, <laughs> talk too long, but. The rest. I'm, I'm, I'm. Questions? <clears throat> Question? Question, yes. Um, as you point out, the large number is key in the office. Alice. Way you guys do it is key. I was talking at one point to a um, someone from UW who was saying that down in the South they can get away with that, that sort of paternalistic thing. Up here we're much more libertarian. Do you think that we could, that you guys have set this great precedent and we'll move in that direction in other places? Or? So I I, th I think that um, you know that's almost a sociological comment. Um, uh, so I'm 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 from the South. I'm from South Canada. <laughs> but I'm fond of saying you'll never meet anybody from North Canada, actually. So, so, so um, uh, the uh, you know I, I I don't I don't think the prevailing attitude at, on the Vanderbilt IRB is southern and paternalistic. I think that this is an argument based on the common rule implemented at the time. We we ran it through OHRP twice. We sort of came to OHRP, which are the you know the guys in Washington who sort of. Have you know are 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 tasked with the uh, job of protecting human subjects, and we we asked them about the design when we started the design, and just before we rolled it out, we went to Vanderbilt Legal and the ethics committees for the you know, there are two ethics committees that look at this, an internal one and an external one. Uh, went to the IRB. The IRB says it's not human subjects. We're going to follow you anyway, and went back to HRP. Now. It may be that in Washington they say that they couldn't possibly do it and therefore they don't try to do it. Um, we mounted an argument that, that uh, was approved on all those fronts. Now you may know and many of you may know that the common rule right now is being rethought. And so it may be that this resource uh, cannot be done in this way. But I think that the argument that we need to create very, very large data sets uh, comes out of this, and whether we create them by opt-out methods or not, I don't, I, I don't know. But I, to create it by an opt-in approach is just much, much, much more expensive. What Zach Kohani, who was here last week, is fond of saying that uh, um, this approach, because they have a similar thing, they have a similar, even more paternalistic approach at Harvard, just and they're in the north, just to say, because <laughs> uh, what they do is they, you know, they will capture data uh, associated with de-identified records and then deliver it to, to uh, uh, investigators. They don't tell the patients at all. Now they deliver a data set and then they throw it away. And then they, if you want another data set, they do it all over again. So there's sort of a, uh, there's a tension between how much information you deliver and how much genetic data. But, but so his estimate is $8 a sample for that approach, $500 a sample to get a consented uh, uh, person because it, there's a whole infrastructure that you have to develop for that. Um, British Biobank uh, is 500,000 people, well phenotyped across the country. Uh, that in Britain cost about 120 million dollars. So I have to, I can't do the math in my head, but how many, how many is it per sample? Not coupled to electronic records. That's another thing that, or, or not coupled to health records yet. They, they obviously are thinking about that. But so I think that that uh, this is an interesting model. Uh, whether it gets adopted or not, I don't know. Um, what, you know, what the result of the common rule will be, I don't know. One of the points of discussion around the common rule is DNA is thought to be inherently identifying and therefore 
you can't de-identify this. There, there's a big argument around that, and this guy is front and center because he runs, he's, a, he's an informatics geek who runs, I don't think he'd be offended by that statement, <laughs> who runs uh, a privacy lab. So his mission in life is to figure out how hard or easy it is to re-identify somebody. Um, uh, the the uh, one thought is that that you know you 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 recognize that DNA is identifying, but you actually go through an exercise of getting consent, but make the consent process easier instead of these ten-page consent forms. We actually, in our model, the IRB said, well, it is non-human subjects, and you can just go ahead and get the samples. But then we have a, an ethics board and a community advisory board, and they both said, you know you really ought to tell people that you're doing this because this is like on a different scale from just getting a piece of liver from your local, friendly local pathologist. So, um, so we have something called a consent to treat form that everybody signs in the outpatient environment once a year. And on the consent to treat form, I should have put that slide in, on the consent to treat form it says, you know, leftover blood will be used uh, in DNA research. Tick here if you don't want that to happen. So it may be that the consent mechanisms that come out of this whole discussion might be something like that. I mean, it's, you know, do you think that organ donation should be opt-in or opt-out? Should the thing on the back of your driver's license say, I don't want to be an organ donor, or should it say, I do want to be an organ donor? And that's a, you know, that's a sort of societal discussion. You know, I think it should say, I don't want to be. I want to opt-out. Otherwise, you're opted-in. Uh, a lot of people don't like that idea. But it's the same. It's you know sort of it's it's the same discussion. I'm not an ethicist. I'm not a lawyer, but I'm allowed to have an opinion anyway. How do you track that when they tick that box? Like, how does that data get into the system so that you can uh, pull that data, that patient, out of your? System? Yeah. So so uh, I, the other thing that I didn't put in here because I only had an hour was the sort of the me the, the 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 mechanics of actually accumulating a sample. So so um, when we but that that form is scanned. And if there's a tick anywhere in or near that box, then the, the patient number is flagged as being an opt-out. Now, um, we don't use patient numbers. We hash the patient number into something else. But every time a blood sample is looked at, uh, the first thing you looked at is, is there enough blood and is it clotted? And if, it's, if either of those two conditions hold, or if there's not enough or if it's clotted, we don't take it. But then it's scanned, and the medical record number is scanned and hashed. So the person who's looking at, the, uh, at the, uh, the computer program says, this person has opted out. We know that. Don't use that sample. So, so there's a whole informatics infrastructure around this that, that you, know, you have to have if you're going to do it this way. The first thing we did was we de-identified de the electronic record, which is another half-hour discussion about how that works. But it's, there's some hilarious, I mean, I'll tell you one hilarious story. I think, it, I think it's hilarious. So, so what you do is you, you go through and you get software. I, I, got, I got to sign a purchase order for a $45,000 piece of software. It's not something you do every day. And, um, and so it, it goes through the record and it strips out all names. And what we do is we actually take out the name and we put something else in. But in the initial implementation, we just sort of took out the name. So when you looked at a record that was identified, it would say, instead of saying uh, uh, Jeff Ginsburg, it would say name, name. Um, and we do that for doctors' names as well, referring doctors' names. So, for example, when we found for, that, you know, if you had Cushing syndrome, it would be name syndrome instead of Cushing syndrome. So you have to go back and fix that because you want the Cushing's part to stay in. 
So, so in the examination of the abdomen, there was a phrase that said, uh, abdomen, uh, soft, non-distended, da, 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 da. And, and because doctors always abbreviate it, it says soft, comma, ND, comma, blah, 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 blah. And the software looks at that and says, oh, look, that's a name of a place in North Dakota. <laughs> so it says abdomen, name, comma, ND. <laughs> so, so, you know, all kinds of examples like that. I so we, yeah. <laughs> so you have to go through and find that stuff. And, and we think the uh, error rate is something under 0.01%, but it's not zero. Sorry. So uh, the, the answer is that I, I think that uh, both kinds of science are important. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, you probably want something with relatively hard outcomes. But uh, if you're in the discovery mode and you want to know what the genetic, what the loci or the pathways or the systems are that control your phenotype of interest, it depends on how obsessive you want to get. Um, there, you know, there are hypertension people at Vanderbilt who have been looking at salt sensitivity for years and years and years and years and years, and they bring people into the CRC and they bring them onto salt balance and they challenge them with a, with a, with a bolus and, and and they look at blood pressure responses and they collect DNA and it's a very 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 slow process. And over the course of years and years and years, you might get hundreds of patients, and then you can start to analyze them this way. So so there is. Uh, uh, sort of a tension between this endophenotype and the and the uh, uh, and the hard outcomes, and I think there's a place for both of them. Um, you know, warfarin dose was easy because because it's it's so tightly controlled by warfarin clinics, um, and uh, uh, you know, it's, I, it's it, if you look at LDL cholesterol, it's pretty easy to get you know as many markers as you like. You know, what they have to do with myocardial infarction is sort of the debate and whether they're useful in predicting those kinds of outcomes. So what you'd like to do is use the endophenotype data to actually predict what happens to heart outcomes. Uh, the more data you have, the happier you are. I think that. No. Uh, we have a mechanism in place to, um, uh, if a sample gets, gets to or is depleted, then the system, so <clears throat> one of the things that the, that the system does is it, it says, oh, look, we have a sample from that patient. We don't need it again. We get about 110 micrograms of DNA from each sample, a little less from the kids, but it's actually not a whole lot less. It's about 80 micrograms from the kids, even from those little bullet tubes. It's pretty amazing. But, you know, in, and, and in, an, in a GWAS era, that will last you from now until the 23rd century. But, but in, a, in a resequencing era, you may actually want to get more. So... So we have, a, we, we have an active debate right now about what the threshold is below which the system ought to trigger reacquisition of a sample. When we reacquire a sample, we wouldn't put it into the same tube, obviously. We store it separately because you never know. You never know. But um, uh, we, and one of the other things that we don't do yet is plasma 
um, or serum. Uh, and we're, we're actively, we're, we're in the sort of, we're at the end of a planning process that will start to accumulate those samples, probably targeting specific diseases. After having said, you know, what a great resource it is to do agnostic science, probably going to target specific diseases, and that's probably because there are particular constituencies in our medical center who are especially interested in that. And they'll work with the samples. You don't want to accumulate a sample set and then have nobody work on them. So those are, those are the kinds of things you have to go through. So. And then tumors we're going to do later, Jeff. Um, I want to ask you a sociologic question about, so you, you presented some really compelling data on the clopidogrel uh -huh. story, and um, I'm just curious, outside of that one champion you showed us, uh, with well, so that's how many of those cardiologists are actually using we, we, we think, I mean, so we've actually started to look at the, at the, at the outcomes data. So that, that, that guy has actually cut his clinical activities down by about two-thirds because he's about to be the director of our medical residency program. So he's going to stop doing this stuff, um, which is another way of saying that he's sort of a, you know, a tiny little drop in. There are 14 interventional cardiologists, so he's one, and he's probably less than a 14th of the effort. Um, some of them, you know, don't like it. Some of them... Uh, are, are willing to use it, and increasingly, it's something that people sort of think about as they have, you know, have they, as they have care issues. I mean, I, um, I was involved. I think I told you this story last night. I was involved in the care of a one of the Vanderbilt faculty who, who has atrial fibrillation, and he was going for uh, he had developed new onset angina. He was going for a cath, and there was a big debate about how to manage his anticoagulation. And should we give him clopidogrel or not? Should we give him warfarin or not? Should we give it? It's a big. It's always a big discussion, for you know fat people who are, who are prone to falling. I mean that's that complicates things as well. And so, um, you know, one of the issues was well, if we give him plavix, how do we know it's even going to work? Because in in the setting of a potential stent, you really want to. Make sure you get it right. And so we, we actually had data on him. And we said, oh, look, he's a star one, star one. So Plavix is fine for him. And it was reassuring. And it was a peculiar uh, episode because it was the first time that I, I think you sorry, actually looked in the chart for data on this person who had been preemptively genotyped and sort of helped the genotype sort of, it's not like the, the decider one way or the other, but it's another piece of data that helps you decide what to do with that patient. So because we display the data, in the electronic record, um, people see it every day, and they get used to it. And now the general cardiologists are starting to see it and use it. And and I think that, you know, you can make an argument that says, um, well, you know, once you have 10 genotypes or 50 genotypes, what are you going to do? I mean, you can't take up all that really valuable real estate on the electronic record for all those genotypes because the, there are other people who want that real estate as well. Um, so, but, but right now, the, uh, the idea of just displaying those genotypes and having people aware that this is a capability that's around makes them sort of more comfortable with it. And I, have, I do have at least twice, you know, sort of senior cardiologists who are not cathing anymore come to me and say, you know, that's sort of interesting. It's fun to be part of this. I'm not sure how much they use it. But. So it, that's all about the sociology, yeah. getting people to adopt, you know, making them comfortable with it. Yes. I have two questions. One is you mentioned outpatient setting, um, obtaining samples from the outpatient setting. Do you also include your acute care? Uh, no, so, so um, uh, that form that I mentioned, the consent to treat form, is signed in an outpatient setting once a year. It's also signed by, by people who come in as inpatients, but um, when it's signed in an inpatient environment, our ethicists think, and I don't disagree with them, 
that there's, you know, when, you, when you're an inpatient, you're coming in and you're you know, presented with 20 forms, sign here, sign here, sign here, so you can get your operation done or you get your cath done or whatever. So it's only in the outpatient environment that we take. So it turns out that about 75% of our outpatients also have an inpatient record. Because you're working the electronic record, once, once they're in the system, then whatever happens to their electronic medical record, outpatient or inpatient, is all, is all there. So it's not like we acquire data only around a particular episode. Once they're in the system, their entire record is available uh, to us. I'm kind of amazed at just where their medical oncology is being taught. You know, they're discussing more region data, what they're doing, what tests we're getting. Right, right. Well, so, so, so we're, um, uh, we're at the beginning, my standard answer is that we're at the beginning of this process, and the first thing that we have to figure out is there are two kinds of outcomes that you can look at. There's, there's something called a process outcome, and there's something called an outcome outcome, a hard outcome. The process outcomes are things like, you know, how many times does this thing fire? How many times do people change their minds? Those kinds of things. And then we're just figuring out how to track that. The obvious outcome, the obvious thing is, you know, what happens to actual outcomes? You can either do a randomized trial, and, and uh, randomized trial could be, you know, randomize one clinic to receive the information, or randomize one practice to re receive information, uh, or or randomize patients. But I like the idea of randomizing practices. Or you can do, uh, uh, you can look at trends. Uh, we're inclined to look at the latter because it's easier, and uh, uh, this is complicated enough. But we have an example where we had. This is very simple. We had a problem with ventilator-associated pneumonia, and, and then Bill Stead and his <coughs> team introduced a set of informatics metrics in the medical intensive care unit, mainly to, to do things that would lower the incidence of ventilator-associated pneumonia, sort of toilet, you know, regular pulmonary toilet, regular this, regular that. And, and what you can sh see is over time, here's the incidence of ventilator-associated pneumonia, introduce the metrics, and it goes like this. So when you see something like that, it's pretty straightforward and pretty easy to get excited about uh, about this. Um, I'm not sure we're ever going to have an outcome like that. The you know the other part of this is, you know, how strong the evidence has to be. I, I, for some things, I think the evidence, uh, you know, the oncology world is showing us that the evidence has to be pretty, pretty strong. You know, we got all excited about what was it? Did you ever figure out what the name of that drug was? Zelbaraf? Is that what it is? The PLX4032. The, the, the BRAF V600E inhibitor. So, it, you know, it cures melanoma, but then it turns out that melanomas all come back. And you have, so you clearly have to have, but we're early days, and you clearly have to track outcomes for interventions like that. Um, you know, the flip side of that is this argument that says if you're prescribed a joxin to a patient, you would ordinarily. Uh, check renal function because everybody knows that digoxin is renally excreted, and if you don't adjust the dose for renal failure, you're going to get toxicity. And that's a that's that's well known. It's in the package insert, and it would be almost malpractice to give a standard dose of digoxin to a patient with renal failure. So, you know, you can extend that argument to say, well, you know, you know about clopidogrel, you know that it's bioactivated by CYP2C19, and if you have two loss of function alleles, it's like giving placebo. Now, I showed you before that placebo doesn't confer immediate death, but you're reducing its efficacy. So, so the same arguments, you know, are, are mounted. You know, how much of a trial do you really need when you have this basic biology?
plus a, a, a drug that's in common use? So I, the answer is I don't know. I mean, we're, we're tracking as much as we can track. One more question, and then we'll get down to rest. Mm -hmm. Sir? Mm -hmm. So you're going to be using um, all kinds of information to make these decisions. Presumably some of it's going to be somehow computer-assisted. Mm -hmm. And you're going to be changing this through time, maybe based on outcomes. These right, things. right. Does the FDA feel okay about this? Do they have any comments about it? Well, the FDA um, is, is uh, so far our friend uh, um, in the sense that they really are interested in variable drug responses. Um, you know, they're, they're, uh, they, get a bad, uh, they get a bad rep. There are lots of sort of very dedicated scientists at FDA who are trying to do the right thing. Uh, um, they're not involved in this kind of regulation beyond the label changes. And the label changes put them sort of way out in front of everybody for a while. And the story, you know, the stories around how they decide to put something in the label or not is a little bit opaque. Uh, they always say, well, we have data that you, you know, that, that we're allowed to see, but you can't see. But trust us that there are data that, that allow us to make that statement in the clopidogrel label, for example. And they're actually uh, busy defending themselves now against all these people who are sort of naysayers. So they, the answer is I think the FDA is very interested in this, but I don't think they have a regulatory role yet. And I think was your question about whether the clinical decision support algorithms are right. um, things that the FDA might need to regulate? Is that what you're yeah. getting at? Yeah. I, the, you know, the answer is I, I hope not, and I don't know. I mean, I, I, you know, uh, we're, we're, we are in a bit of a sort of Wild West kind of environment right now. Everybody's developing their own clinical decision support. Everybody's developing their own set of, of guidelines as to what is implementable. So uh, at Vanderbilt, we have implemented CYP2C19 genotyping and clopidogrel. We've implemented SLCO1B1 genotyping and statins. And we are about to implement, I can't, I've been saying this for like two months, but we're about to implement warfarin. Uh, guidance for uh, initial dose selection, and that you know, <laughs> I don't know what the holdup is, but it should be it should be online now. Um, and other places are doing programs that are similar. So at Mayo, they're all over antipsychotics and antidepressants because Dave Mrazek is a champion. Uh, at at uh, Maryland, they're all over CYP2C19, STAR2, but they're doing it at the point of care. They're doing it in a, in a reactive way, not a preemptive way, but at, at the bedside. So everybody's sort of doing it their own way. The, the decision support that they provide is, is homegrown. And the, the, the process through which an institution decides to put something in the medical record or not is different by institution. It has to be. I mean, you know, we're not, the University of Maryland may decide to do something, and that doesn't mean Vanderbilt is going to automatically do that. Now, it may come to something in 10 years where there's some global body that says, here is something that you do, and most medical centers say, okay, fine, we'll stick that in our decision support. But right now, it's institution by institution. Thank you very much. Okay.